0: To Matthew, and we're in we'll be closing out chapter 3 as we uh, look at Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus. And it's been a couple of weeks, so I'm going to go ahead and read all of Matthew chapter 3. So Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "'You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance.'" whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And now our passage for today, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the baptism of Jesus, here in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. So the first thing that we'll notice here in this passage is the setting. Matthew says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And um, forgive me, I think that you probably can't see the writing on this map very well. Um, but up here we have the Sea of Galilee. Here's the town of Nazareth in the, the district of Galilee, that's this area. And Nazareth is the town where Jesus' family brought him after they had escaped from Herod into Egypt. And so Jesus was born in the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And then John was baptizing over here in the region of Perea, beyond the Jordan in the Judean wilderness. And this is about a 60-mile or so Track. And uh, it's interesting that Matthew uh, leaves us in terms of his narrative when Jesus was a child settling with his family in Nazareth. And now this is the first time when uh, Jesus is on the scene again and uh, some 30 years or so have, have gone by since then. So that is the setting. Jesus is now a grown man, roughly 30 years of age, and, uh, and he has come out to be baptized by John the Baptist. Every, the, the people from the uh, region around the wilderness of Judea had also been going out to John to be baptized. And it turns out that included Jesus. Secondly, there's the encounter, verses 14 and 15. So Jesus comes to John to be baptized. What happened next? Verse 14, the beginning of verse 14. John would have prevented him. That's a pretty amazing statement. John did not want to baptize Jesus. He didn't think it was right. If it was up to John the Baptist, he would have turned Jesus away from being baptized, just as he had turned away the Sadducees and the Pharisees from being baptized, but of course for different reasons. But as we'll see, it wasn't up to John. This was John's thinking to turn Jesus away, but that wasn't God's Thinking. But why would John have present, uh, prevented Jesus from being baptized? Second half of verse 14. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John thinks that this is the, the ultimate cart before the horse, it's the ultimate role reversal. Jesus should not be seeking to be baptized by John. John should be seeking to be baptized by Jesus. And we remember John's role in prophecy. John was prophesied, he was predicted by Isaiah the prophet, and he was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one who came to prepare the way of the Lord by calling God's people to repentance. And uh, John was aware of that. He embraced his calling from God. And for some reason, we're not told exactly how, but uh, John had either connected the dots and figured it out, or God had told him directly. After all, John was a prophet. But John knew that Jesus was the Messiah. John knew that his role was to prepare the way of the Lord, Jehovah, Jesus. And so he says, I need to be baptized by you. Baptism was supposed to be performed by a a superior, a a teacher, a leader, and then those who were baptized are supposed to be disciples of that teacher or, or leader. And that's why John sees the roles reversed, but there's more to it than just that, I'm convinced, because of what baptism signified. It was a baptism of repentance, it was a baptism of confessing of sins. And John undoubtedly realized that Jesus did not need repentance, John needed repentance. Jesus had no need of repentance. John must have realized that Jesus had no sins to confess. John, no doubt, as a righteous man, knew that he was a sinner before God and he had sins to to confess. He wasn't righteous before God because of his own righteousness. No sinner is. He knew that he had need of confession, and Jesus did not. And so why did Jesus insist on being baptized by John? Jesus kind of answers that in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all Righteousness. Then he, John, consented. Remember, he would have prevented Jesus from being baptized. But after Jesus makes the statement, then John consented. That's an interesting answer. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In a sense... Jesus doesn't really answer the question. He he simply says, this is right. This is in keeping with, with righteousness. This is part and parcel with my ministry that I would fulfill all righteousness. He's basically saying it's the right thing to do. John, it might not feel right, might not seem right, it might seem out of order, but trust me, John, this is right. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on as we look back on the passage and reflect, but for now, think about this. If it was right for Jesus to be baptized, how much more right is it for his followers to be baptized we who do have great need of repentance and so many sins to confess so i'll leave that thought with you if you're a, a disciple of jesus if you're a follower of jesus and you've not been baptized like jesus was baptized then let me commend that to you if it was right for jesus to baptize to be baptized surely it's right for you to be baptized as well as one of his disciples. So that's the encounter. Then there's the heavenly affirmation. And really, this is the heart of the passage. This is the main point in verses 16 through 17, the heavenly affirmation. In these verses, God put his stamp of approval on Jesus In two ways. First of all, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, it's it's interesting that Matthew seems to just gloss over the actual baptism. There's all of this leading up to it. And then all of a sudden, and when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This is a very profound scene. It was supernatural and it's meant to teach a lesson. Uh, And the lesson is not that the, the Holy Spirit is literally and physically in the form of a dove. We're, we're actually not sure was this was this a, a literal physical dove? Was was it something that appeared, some sort of physical um, spiritual manifestation that looked like a physical dove? My inclination is that it it was a dove, uh, a real literal physical dove, but That's not the main point. The main point is what uh, the dove symbolizes, the Holy Spirit. The dove represents the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the whole scene symbolizes Jesus being peculiarly, supernaturally anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. Because, after all, that's the definition of the Messiah, the Anointed One. That's the definition of the Christ, the Anointed One. And this is what Jesus understood himself to be. In uh, Luke chapter 4, in verse 18, when Jesus uh, stood up in the, in the temple to read the Scriptures... Actually, I think it was in the, in the synagogue. You can correct me. But he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. So Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah. Jesus says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And here's what Jesus said, as he quoted from Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed. And then Jesus goes on to say, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so this is God saying from heaven, you are my son, which he's going to literally say, You are the anointed one. And this is God saying for everyone else to see as well, this is the Messiah whom you have been waiting for. This is the promised one, the hope of Israel, the one who would bring the salvation, not only of Israel, but of all of the nations. This is he. His time has come. His kingdom has arrived. He's fulfilling all of my promises concerning him. This is the one. The apostle John wrote in John 3 and verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. And so, the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus in the form of a dove was like a harbinger of even greater things to come. It was an incredible sight to see, but then there would be incredible works that Jesus would do by the power of the same Holy Spirit. And so there's a sense in which uh, this event the coming of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus after his baptism, this is the formal public commencement of his public ministry. He had uh, lived his life as a man preparing for this time, and now the time was here. That's the first way in which God set his stamp of approval on Jesus the second way is that God spoke from heaven. Note verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So there's the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove and then a voice. Now a couple of things to point out here in verse Seventeen, and here we're going to look at um, all of the Gospels. Here we are, and um, let, let me remind you: there are four Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They—they they all wrote as they were carried along and empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that the wor- the result is the Word of God through the instrumentality of human beings, and they all wrote about the same birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, but there are, there are differences among them. And those differences are not contradictions. It's because out of the, the entire catalog of all of the facts of Jesus' life and ministry, each gospel writer tailored those facts to suit his particular theme, his particular emphasis. And uh, also, if you think about it, the fact that there are these four different and independent gospel writers, it's, it's actually credibility. It lends credibility to the truth of what they write because if they just basically said the same thing constantly and every single story, and every single detail, then it would be easy to say, well, they just got together and conspired together to write the same thing. It's, uh, it, it's, it's as if a group of people accused of a crime before their trial and before the investigation, they all got together and got their story straight. Well, that's not what happened. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't do that and these differences among their Gospels are there for us to, um, uh, to admire, to learn from, and together there's a fuller and richer story of Jesus' life and ministry. It's a four-fold Gospel. So Jesus' baptism is one of those events in his life and ministry that all four Gospel writers mention. You guys probably can't see that, can you? Can you? Oh good. If I was sitting where you can't, you are, I probably wouldn't be able to see it. So here we are in Matthew. and no- notice, uh, this didn't make it all the way down. Um, we just read this, this, and a voice from heaven said, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased." And um, in Mark's gospel, he personalizes it. You are my, beloved son. And then Luke also says, you are my beloved son. So which is it? Is it this is my beloved son or is it you are my beloved son? And I say, yes, it's it's both of them. And, and I have to admit, uh, I don't know exactly how that worked. So Let me explain an option, uh, a a possible way of interpreting both of these statements. First of all, um, it's pretty obvious that it was a public statement. It, It wasn't just Jesus who heard this voice from heaven, but certainly Jesus did hear this voice from heaven. And what God communicated to Jesus was you are my beloved son. And by the way, I believe that that was important because even though Jesus is the eternal word of God through whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together and consist, he is Jehovah in the flesh. He is also a man, a true man, just like us, except he knew no sin. And so here is the man, Christ Jesus, embarking on his earthly ministry. And you, you already know the end of the story, his three-ish, Years of public ministry are going to be filled with lots of joys and triumphs, but also some trials and temptations, as we're going to see in Matthew chapter 4. And his life and ministry are ultimately going to culminate in his horrible, excruciating death on Calvary's cross. And so it's fitting for his heavenly father to encourage Jesus, to assure Jesus, as he's beginning the journey of his public ministry, to remind him, you are my beloved son. But what everybody else heard is, this is my beloved son. Does that mean God used different words? I don't know. Maybe Jesus heard the words of God in the spirit and everybody else heard, this is my beloved son from heaven audibly. I'm honestly not sure. But what I'm confident in is that these statements are all true. They they coalesce to give um, a full comprehensive account of this event Jesus received You are my beloved son. The crowd heard, This is my beloved son. And by the way, John helps us because even though he doesn't give as many details, um, after he talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remaining on Jesus, John says in the very next verse, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so not only did Jesus see the dove and hear the voice from heaven, John did as well, and presumably so did everybody else. So uh, God uh, blessed. He affirmed Jesus In these two ways. By the way, so the main point in this affirmation is that uh, Jesus is the promised anointed one. Mention that. He's the Messiah, he's the Christ. And by the way, isn't this what, what Peter affirmed in Peter's great confession in Matthew chapter 16? You are the Christ. The son of the living God. Both of those those labels of Jesus are very important to understand who he is. He's the Christ, the Messiah, and he is the son of the living God. Nobody else could have been the Christ. It had to be Jesus, and Jesus had to be the son of the living God. That's who Jesus is. And verses 16 and 17 emphasize that. All right. So that's the passage. Uh, I'd like to reflect on a couple of takeaways. Just, uh, just, just two. So the first takeaway from Jesus' baptism is that the baptism of Jesus teaches us important lessons about Christian baptism. This teaches us important lessons about Christian baptism. The reason that Christians baptize is because of Christ's command in the Great Commission, remember? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, Jesus said, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, That command from Jesus in the Great Commission, that's why Christians baptize. But what's interesting is that that command in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, that's the next occurrence in Matthew's gospel of baptism. So we go from John chapter 3 to Matthew chapter 28 and Jesus' command to baptize. And when Jesus gives that command to baptize in the Great Commission, nobody says, Baptize? What do you mean by that, Jesus? We've never heard of such a thing. And Jesus doesn't say, Baptizing them and then He doesn't stop and pause and say, Oh, let me explain what I mean by this command to baptize. All he says is, baptize the nations. That's because Christian baptism, even though it's not identical with this baptism of John the Baptist, John's baptism grew into Christian baptism. Or to put it another way, Jesus co-opted John's baptism. Jesus took it over and he tailored it for his purpose. So in John's baptism, there's no mention of the Trinity, although after Jesus' baptism, here we have the all three persons of the Trinity in one event at one time. There's the voice from heaven that presumably proceeds from the Father. There's the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And then there's the second person in the Holy Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, who was baptized as a man and who was anointed by the Holy Spirit as a man. So the Trinity is on display, and yet... John didn't baptize in the name of the Father and of of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And John baptized pointing forward to Jesus. Christian baptism is looking backward to Jesus. In other words, Christian baptism uh, assumes the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ The completion of the work of redemption that Jesus came to do. And yet, the ceremony is the same. The the thing that Jesus commanded is the same. Are you with me so far? Does that make sense to you? Christian baptism is not an entirely brand new ordinance from John's baptism. It's fundamentally the same with uh, Christ's additions. So therefore, we can draw some lessons uh, about Christian baptism from John's baptism, and in particular, Jesus' own baptism. And the first lesson then about baptism is that it is a symbol and profession of repentance. It's called a baptism of repentance by John. And people who are baptized in Christian baptism, they're professing to be a repenter. When someone is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you're proclaiming to be one who not only has repented in coming to Christ, but your life is a life of repentance. Baptism is a symbol and profession of repentance. Uh, Another lesson is that a person seeks baptism. Baptism is not imposed on a person, right? The, The people from around Judea came out to John to be baptized. There were Sadducees and Pharisees who came to be baptized by John, and he turned them away. And then Jesus came from Galilee to uh, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. It's, It's obvious, just reading the language, that a person seeks baptism. Baptism is not imposed on a person. Thirdly, and I know this uh, might be the most controversial part, but I just bears saying that baptism is by immersion into water. That's why John baptized uh, in a body of water, the, the Jordan, and the, the language suggests this. So you have Matthew's language that he, he went up from the water and... Mark is a little bit more explicit. As he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens tore apart and the Spirit descending on him. That's what the language implies. And then remember that this is what the words mean. The root word for baptism is bapto, which means to to dip into. Baptism, baptizo, baptizo is an intensified version of that verb, bapto, and it means to submerge, to immerse, and therefore to be overwhelmed. That's what the word mean. And so the the natural conclusion of the gospel writer's presentation of John's baptism and John's baptism of Jesus is that this ceremony that John did and Jesus subjected himself to, that ceremony is a ceremony in which the person is dipped into, submerged in water. And if there's any doubt about that, then consider how the Apostle Paul in the New Testament calls baptism a burial. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul wrote, therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death. And in Colossians 2 and verse 12, Paul says we are buried with him in baptism. Sprinkling a few drops of water on someone's head in no way is a symbol of a burial. But burying somebody in water, now that's a burial. And baptism represents burial. It represents a lot of things. Cleansing from sin as well and having water poured on you can symbolize cleansing from sin. But baptism by immersion in water is the only way in which all of these functions and all of the symbolism of baptism can be pictured, including burial. So I just want to make that point. And as I make that point, I'll caveat it by saying that baptism itself is a ceremony. It's a ritual. It is not the gospel. And the Apostle Paul said about his own ministry to the Corinthians he said that he came to Corinth preaching the gospel and not baptizing. And he even forgot about who he had, who he had baptized. So baptism is important in that it is a command from the Lord, but baptism does not save, and baptism should not make Christians mad at each other. And I'm not trying to make Christians mad at each other now, but I do feel it's appropriate to point out these lessons about Christian baptism by observing what Matthew writes to us in Matthew chapter 3. Fair enough? All right, number two. Two takeaways, this is the second. More importantly than what Jesus' baptism teaches us about baptism is what Jesus' baptism teaches us about Jesus himself. We've already noticed he is the Messiah, the promised anointed one. You've already noticed he's the Son of God. But notice again his statement in verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus subjected himself to baptism. To fulfill all righteousness. Now, that's an amazing thing when you think about what the Bible teaches about justification. The the Bible teaches, the rest of the New Testament, especially the epistles of the Apostle Paul, um, elaborate and expand on the doctrine of justification. Jesus touched on it as well especially in the story of um, the tax collector and the Pharisee. But in justification, the the Bible teaches us that um, God pronounces us sinners righteous through faith alone, through nothing that we do, and it's on the basis of Jesus's own righteousness, so that when God pronounces us righteous, which is what justification is, it's a legal pronouncement of righteousness. We get credit for Jesus' righteousness. and Jesus pays the penalty, He paid the pet, he, uh, the price, He takes the blame for our sin. It's a double transaction. It's not just that our sins are laid on Jesus, but that's absolutely true and very, very important, but it's not just that. It's also that we get credit for Jesus' active obedience. And just for one example passage, look with me in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. Romans 5 and verse 19. And I'm going to cut to the chase in verse 19 because there's a larger context. But just notice these words for now. Paul says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. And who's that one man? Adam. Thanks a lot, Adam. Our first father Adam, in the Garden of Eden, when, when uh, Adam fell, we fell in him. When Adam disobeyed, we disobeyed in him because he represents us. He represents mankind. But then, just as that is true, Paul also says, so... By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And who's that one man? In the context, it's Jesus. Jesus Christ the righteous. So once again, Adam's disobedience was imputed to us because he represented us. In the same way, Jesus' obedience is imputed to us because he represents us. He is the second and and greater Adam. And so think about this then when it comes to baptism. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is part of Jesus working out a perfect human Righteousness in complete obedience to all of the commands of God, all of the requirements of God, all of the righteous standards of God, so that that perfect righteousness can be credited to us. This is Jesus making himself through his obedience to God our substitute. Our Savior, our Justifier. This is why the Bible can say that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, not only because Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins, but Jesus also lived in our place, rendering perfect, unstained, unblemished obedience to his Father and our Father. It's an amazing thought that it's good for us to remember. But not only did Jesus fulfill all righteousness, and that included his baptism, Jesus identified with sinners. Remember, baptism symbolizes repentance. People who were being baptized by John the Baptist were confessing their sins. Jesus personally had no need of repentance because he never sinned and he had no sins to confess. And yet, he was the most guilty human being the world has ever known. And you know the rest of that story. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Our sins, our guilt, the punishment and condemnation that we deserve came upon Jesus on the cross. Jesus identified himself with us. And he did that in his baptism. He didn't need to repent. He didn't need to confess. But we sure do. And here Jesus is showing himself to be a friend of sinners. One with us. Not in actually sinning but in taking our place, bearing our burdens, absorbing the wrath of God that our sins deserve, being willing to be accounted as the world's worst sinner, the scapegoat for all of God's people. He identifies with us. He was not ashamed to be called our brother. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus' baptism. And it really is a glorious event. And it really does contain mysterious truths incomprehensible truths. Here we have on display the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we also have Jesus rendering to you perfect obedience and identifying himself with sinners like us. Thank you for this event. Thank you for uh, Matthew's faithful recording of it. And thank you that we were able to look at it today. Would you... Help us ourselves, Lord, as the Spirit works in us. Help us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Help us to follow Jesus, to be imitators of him, including, Lord, in the waters of baptism. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.